You're listening to Focus on Utilities, brought to you by Power and Utilities Australia, the disruptor platform for Australia's utilities undergoing transition. Join us each month as we bring together diverse and divergent voices from the energy sector to unpack some of the key challenges and opportunities facing energy networks as they transition towards net zero. Welcome to our inaugural Focus on Utilities podcast, brought to you by the Power and Utilities Australia Leadership Summit. Um, where we bring you engaging discussions every month about how utilities are driving the energy transition and the challenges and opportunities presented by the nation's net zero ambitions. I'm Paul Mathers. I'm the Event Director of Power and Utilities Australia. And I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we work, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. This month, we take a deep dive into the electrical vehicle revolution and the role of utilities in Australia's EV rollout. I think we'd all agree that increasing the adoption of EVs requires more public and private charging infrastructure and places additional load on the grid. But EVs also have the potential to transform the energy system, both by reducing overall carbon emissions and providing additional storage capacity to homes or even the grid. There's lots of moving parts, of course, across the entire supply chain from DNSPs through to consumers. So we thought we'd bring in some big guns today to guide us through this evolving conversation. Joining me as my co-host is Ross Durango, Head of Energy and Infrastructure at the Electrical Vehicle Council, or Electric Vehicle Council, who knows a little on the subject. Welcome, Ross. Thank you very much, Paul. Absolute pleasure to be here today. Fair to say you're a, a fan of electric vehicles. Yeah, absolutely. My wife and I have two. Uh, well, uh, an early adopter, it's fair to say. Personally, I, there's a couple of things standing in the way from me buying one right now. I think uh, there's a bit of cost disparity compared to ICEs. Certainly, there are uh, lots of vehicles on the market today and electric vehicles, pure battery electric vehicles tend to be somewhat on the pricier side, but we're now seeing more and more models come to market in a more affordable price range. Yeah, I think that that $40,000 seems to be the benchmark, doesn't it, that everyone's measuring by, but when you can buy a Corolla for $25,000, there's a big cost disparity, I think, for the the average person. The other thing is, you you mentioned there's more models coming on the market, but we're still a long way behind Europe when it comes to a, a choice of models. What I find is that there's there's just there's not a lot of choice out there for us. There's a bunch of Chinese brands and a couple of uh, European brands, and and then kind of there's a big gap before anything else. So in Australia, there are several dozen models of EV available, but you're spot on. There are far more models available in other markets around the world. The big thing driving this is fuel efficiency standards. Uh, Right now, global automotive manufacturers are very, very heavily incentivised to shift those vehicles in markets that have appropriate market settings, which at this point we don't have. Uh, Federal government is very much on the case on this. We're expecting to see fuel efficiency standards come out in Australia in the near future. Oh, that's great to hear because uh, I spent some time in the UK over the last couple of years and uh, and there's a lot of really interesting cars being, uh, being driven over there, being sold over there. And uh, it'd be great to see some of them come to Australia too. I think we look at those those car websites, those people have, like like me that are into cars and you go, oh, geez, when's that coming? And oh, not due for Australia, uh, which is always a bit uh, disparaging. But, but um, what's the EV Council's projections for EV uptake, Ross, by say, let's say 2040? 
So the journey that we're on is one where the vast majority of road transport is going to go electric over the next 30, 40 odd years. The question's not so much where are we going, it's how long is it going to take for us to get there. The key thing that's going to impact that is the degree to which global car makers shift from manufacturing petrol and diesel vehicles to manufacturing electric and then the degree to which they assign those vehicles to different markets around the world. Uh, without wanting to put too fine a point on it, the degree to which we bring in robust fuel efficiency standards is going to define yeah. where we're at in 2030 and in 2040. So all eyes really are on that because that's the thing that's going to define supply. On the demand side, Australians love EVs. We've seen more than 80,000 sold this year. Uh, the constraint isn't demand, the constraint supply. Yeah, no, that's, well, in so many areas, isn't there, that we've got a supply issue for sure. What do you think the biggest challenge is for utilities as, as this EV adoption grows? I think in a big picture setting, we're going from current state of play today, where we consume about 30 billion litres of petrol and diesel each year at a cost of about $50 billion to run our road transport systems, cars, trucks, buses. That's not including trains, planes, boats. That's just the stuff that runs on the roads. We're going to shift to a future where that $50 billion of petrol and diesel spend transitions to about $20 billion of electrical spend. We're going to increase the amount of electrical energy used in our country by about 40%, and all of that electricity needs to be delivered into places where we're already delivering energy, but not in that quantity. It is the role of the energy networks to ensure that the delivery of that energy is possible. And as we move to a future where the cars have bi-directional flow to support that bi-directional flow in order that we're able to do things like closing down coal and gas-fired power stations and keep them closed. It's a big job. Yeah, right now, boots on the ground, it's a tough one, isn't it? But uh, luckily, we've got a couple of big brains in the room to help us solve these problems. So let's get on with it. Greg Hannon. He's the head of network strategy and non-network solutions at City Power and Power Corp. Good to see you again, Greg. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. Are you an EV driver? No, I'm not. But um, I have recently looked into it, and I've got to say, um, I've noticed a lot more driving around as a result. But one of the things I actually um, am looking for in a car is the ability to have three cricket bags in the back. So <laughs> one of the cheaper options I looked at didn't meet that criteria. So I've got some other criteria for my own personal needs. We've all got our own criteria, <laughs> don't we? Yeah. So quick question for you without notice. 10,000 holidaymakers in EV descend on lawn for the Easter long weekend. Is that a good or bad scenario for PowerCorp? Well, I mean, people descend on holiday spots all the time. So, you know, some of those locations like um, that at the end of the network, coastal towns, often have very peaky loads. So they've got different kind of management strategies. Um, you know, if they all came down there unannounced, never happened before, we didn't forecast that they all turn on their EVs exactly the same time. Yeah, that might be a challenge, but we don't expect that to happen. And, you know, the beauty of the grid is it diversifies the load. People don't act at the same way at the same time. And the beauty of EVs is that there is the ability to provide price signals, um, to encourage people to charge at different times and so on and so forth. So, you know, we're, we're, we're here to connect customers. We're here to connect businesses. If you want to have an EV, you want to drive to the lawn, you're in the business of connecting you. So that's ultimately what we're here for. So I shouldn't worry that if I drive to lawn in my EV with everybody else that I'm not going to be able to charge it and get back to work. <laughs> what? No, I don't think that's a problem. We've got about 25,000 EVs um, on the network at the moment. Um, obviously, that's low numbers. Um, you know, By contrast, our sister network in London has about 10 times that volume. Um, and as we've heard from Ross, you know, we're expecting that to grow over time. How fast and at what rate, you know, we'll see. 
Um, but we're planning for that future and, you know, um, I guess that's what we're going to talk about more. Yes, we are. And, of course, no one's charging if there aren't any charges. And someone who can make it a bit easier to pay for them is our second guest. Rob Asselman is the head of marketing at Chargebox. Welcome aboard, Rob. Pleasure to be here, Paul. Now, you're selling a payment platform, essentially, for public EV charges, but you've also spent quite a bit of time on the utilities side of the equation. Yeah, that's correct. So head of marketing at Chargefox, we run uh, the, I think, the highest number of public charges in the country. So we don't own the charges themselves, but we aggregate them. We bring them together, similar to an Airbnb type platform. So we bring together charges from organisations like uh, Electric Highway in Tasmania, the motoring clubs around Australia, uh, Engie, the big French energy company that are rolling out uh, charges at a rate of knots. Um, and yeah, in a previous life, I've, I've worked with uh, with Greg before in a couple of organisations, both at Osnet Services and also at City Power Power Corp. Great. So my uh, 10,000 EV scenario in a holiday destination is pretty good news for someone like you with charging infrastructure solutions. Yeah, I think you should probably be more ambitious. I think last, I checked yesterday and last month, October alone, we had 117,000 drivers charge across the country. Uh, on a ChargeFox charger or through the ChargeFox app. That's that's a great result and growing growing as well, I, I, I'm sure. Absolutely. Before we kick off proper, I'd, I'd just like to acknowledge that we do have a lot of blokes in this particular episode. Now, we didn't plan it that way, but sometimes <laughs> that's the way the cards fall. It, it is our aim to provide an equitable gender balance right across our power and utilities content program. So I'm pleased to say that our accompanying Focus on Utilities newsletter, which will be landing in your inboxes today, features insights from Carly Irving Dolan, the CEO of NRMA Energy, and Carola Jones, the CEO of Everty. Gents, let's get into it. Greg, what do DNSPs consider their role in the EV rollout versus the role of consumers? Well, I mean, I guess the put some facts on the table. You know, customers are voting with their feet in investing in what's called Customer Energy Resources, or CER, EVs, right? Batteries, solar, right? 16% of our customers, over 300,000 have solar. They've invested in it. Our job is to enable that, to make it easy for them. Um, once customers choose to in invest, our job is to support that, <coughs> excuse me, enable it. Um, and so with EVs, you know, we'll be the same. We want, you know, we're not here to be a barrier. We're here to um, plan, make sure that once the time a customer comes to buy an EV, from their point of view, in dealing with the network, it's seamless and easy, but we need to plan for that, we need to forecast for that, we need to make sure that the 100% of customers, not just the 1% who have an EV at the moment, um, are being treated fairly, and we need to make sure that we plan um, appropriately and can recover the revenue that we'll need to integrate EVs over the long term. Yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on. Uh, the role of the consumer is to decide what kind of things they want, right? As consumers, we make these choices every day when we choose to buy one product versus another. Where those products are things like cars, air conditioners, hot water services that are going to consume an energy source, it is the role of the network providing that energy source to plan appropriately. Uh, that's true whether it's an electricity network, a gas network, a water network, a road network. Uh, it's absolutely the role of the DNSPs, the distribution businesses in the company, to plan for this future and ensure that as Australians choose to take on EVs, they're supported in that journey. And of course, at the end of the equation, you've got retailers who are also incentivising, aren't they? In some cases, you've got Origin with their program um, and with the, with the EV sort of leasing program, I guess you call it. Um, so uh, it's, it's a whole of chain. Solutions. Can I go a step further as well, Paul? So if you look at what's happening more broadly in energy, you know, we're going from centralised to decentralised, right? So 
a lot of the activities now occurring in the last mile of the supply chain, our networks, people are putting home, um, solar panels in their homes and businesses, connecting EVs, right? So in many ways, our network is becoming one of the critical assets in the whole system, right? So, um, and we're always investing for the long term. So it should come as no surprise that we're thinking about how to in- integrate EVs um, now and into the future. So there's a, a long way to go with respect to the transition to EVs. Uh, as Greg touched on earlier, we've had about 1% of the consumers transition to EVs. That leaves about 99% yet to go and an awful lot of road to run on making sure we do that transition well. There's a few elements there where our energy networks uh, being the party in the middle, being the indispensable part of serving energy from generation to consumer, have a role to play and perhaps have room to do things a little differently in future to how they're doing today. Some of these concepts are things like tariff design, second lines of supply, elements which our audience is going to be familiar with. Uh, Greg, perhaps you'd care to comment on some of those? Yeah, good point, Ross. So one of the things we're doing at the moment is we're trialling what's called a daytime saver, which is a network tariff that basically provides a really strong signal to use energy um, during the middle of the day and that aligns to when there's excess solar. So we expect that's going to have a bigger role going forward. And if customers can um, go onto that and the retailer can pass it through, then they've got a really strong price signal. Um, and I think that's going to be part of it. Um, the other thing that we've been doing, because, you know, as Ross said, and I mentioned earlier, it's still early days in terms of uptake, but, you know, we're trying to learn through trials. So we did a, a trial with a number of other DNSPs around Australia called EB Grid, where we actually published a dynamic operating envelope to the charge um, the charger that the customers were given um, and we could see that the customers responded to signals in that way. Um, as I mentioned, tariffs are going to play a role. Um, there's also the, the, the time we use tariffs that discourage charging when the, the network's at peak. So all of that's going to come into play and then in, in increasingly what you're going to see in my view is customers looking to match their own solar with um, ultimately what's going to be a form of storage that can either soak up energy and, and ultimately um, potentially use it either in the car or elsewhere down the track. Very good, yeah. So I think in the context of consumers charging their cars at home, uh, I'd agree, we're already seeing a lot of consumer behaviour shifting energy use to self-consume their own solar, shifting energy use to the middle of the night to chase cheap tariffs, so a retail tariff that is enabled by an appropriate network tariff. I'm expecting that that's going to continue. So we're seeing retail offers from the likes of AGL, Simply Energy, Ovo, PowerShop, designing really sharply simple tariffs to encourage the right behaviour, the grid-friendly behaviour from consumers. Uh, In the public setting, Paul touched on what happens if 10,000 people descend on lawn. The 10,000 people charging in the garage of the holiday house at lawn overnight off-peak is probably not too much an issue. I'd be more thinking about how are those people going to charge their cars while they're driving around on the Great Ocean Road. So the presence of high-power public charging equipment and what it takes to speed that rollout up. Uh, that's probably a combination of Greg and Rob to speak to. So maybe Rob, if we throw to you. Yeah, it's interesting. I think public charging is is oft spoke about. The reality is well over 90% of charging, well, well over 90% of charging happens at home. Um, but you're absolutely right. When we have those peak holiday periods, areas that have uh, high loads during holiday seasons, um, there's going to be demand on the public charges as there will be demand on the on private charges. I was actually just at Phillip Island uh, with my family two weeks ago with another fellow uh, EV driver and we both charged it out at our Airbnb. So thanks to my host for that one. Um, we did that overnight uh, and, and I'm sure we didn't uh, provide much impact to her bill nor the grid. But charges are being rolled out. 
uh, charts are being rolled out really fast. I think we had about 105 additional plugs go out live on our network last month, uh, and we're growing at that rate or even more each month. And that's just one one uh, availability uh, vector, which is ChargeFox. There's a number of different networks around there. So the rollout of public charges is significant and it's accelerating, which is fantastic and great news for everyone. Um, the challenge is in some areas, it is more difficult to get the supply to roll out a, a super fast charger, a 350 kilowatt, for example, because we just can't get the electrons to those locations or there's other challenges. There's civil challenges around getting parking spots and infrastructure and all those other things. But we are overcoming those. And I think the great thing is, is we're beginning, and by we, I mean the the EV charging uh, industry, uh, if I can uh, be as bold as to kind of claim that territory for the moment, we are working closer with organisations like City Power and PowerCore and Osnet to better understand how we can uh, cooperate with one another to enable that public charging EV future that we all desire. Rob, just quickly, we, we talked about, or Greg talked about incentivising consumers at home through pricing. You know, we can incentivise them to to charge off peak at three in the morning and whatnot. How do we do that with public infrastructure, though? Uh, because presumably nobody's leaving their house at two in the morning to go and charge their car, right? It's a really good question, Paul. And um, at the moment, we're conducting a number of trials. One, uh, we're working with uh, some organisations in Port Adelaide, particularly, where we're trying some different dynamic pricing models, which will mean that they will follow, I guess, a similar model to the ones that Greg's outlined earlier, which is... Uh, using price to incentivize people to charge at particular times of day and conversely using price to disincentivize people to charge at times of the day when the network is, is under strain. So uh, we've got some really interesting findings that have come out about that uh, already, which is fantastic. Um, the, the, the takeaway of it that we found so far, the early learnings are that uh, incentivizing people is great. It always is. It works in every walk of life. As soon as that incentive or that model becomes too complex, people become confused or intimidated and they step away. Well, I just wanted to say, to pick up on that, you know, there's a bit of education that goes along with that, isn't there? Because there's 120 years of people going to petrol stations and seeing one price on the Bowser and being able to pay that all day, each day, until it goes up or down. Whereas what you're talking about is the price goes up and down during the day and people aren't used to that. Yeah, I must stress that's definitely a limited trial at the moment and most places still have a flat rate. Uh, however, you're absolutely right. And I think there are a lot of learnings to be taken from the petrol experience that we've all had for a century plus, but there is going to be a change in, I guess, um, understanding about how things work. Uh, charging an EV will always take, or at least for the foreseeable future, will take slightly longer than filling up a petrol car, but you don't charge an EV from empty to full. Um, and there's an umpteen different things, which I'm sure Ross can expand on shortly, where we take our petrol driving experience, um, I think, as a given, because it's, it's inherently part of who we are, and we've all been doing it, or most of us have been doing it for a long time. And we try to transfer that directly to an EV driving experience. And it's just it's just not a one-for-one -one comparison, but we need to have the EV experience be as, uh, as easy and as seamless for as many drivers as possible. I think that point on... Uh the pricing at the time of day at the public charging station influencing behavior is a really important one. And the pricing of petrol we know already influences behavior. So everyone can think of a time where they or someone they know has driven further or gone around the block oh, for looking sure. for a few cents cheaper on a price of petrol, right? Petrol prices vary day to day. You can look at a petrol station in the morning and come back the same afternoon and the price is different and you've got no way of knowing in advance what the price is going to be. 
if I think about the public high power charges that are part of this trial, correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, but as I understand it, there's a price during a particular time of day that is set, and that's the price you can reasonably expect if you turn up at that time of day to charge your car. If you want to charge your car at a different time of day, you can. You can roll up at a different time and charge when you need to. It'll just cost a different number. I think what we're going to see there is consumers that have discretion around when they charge their car will absolutely take advantage of that lower price point. So if I know that I want to go to my local shopping centre to recharge my car because, for example, I live in a terrace house and I don't have off-street parking, I'm going to schedule my shopping trip for when it's cheap to charge my car because it makes no odds to me whether I do that shopping at 10 in the morning or 3 in the afternoon. If it's cheaper at 10, that's what I'm going to do. I think it's, it's important to also understand that the difference in costs um, from a peak time to, a, to an off-peak time, they are, they are material, but when we're comparing it to the cost of filling up a petrol tank or a, or a diesel tank, I used to drive a diesel car myself, you're looking at $2.20 a litre there. So we're, we're really maybe splitting hairs on the cost differential. Sure, it is going to act yeah. as some type of incentive and disincentive, but if you're coming from a petrol car, it's not really a comparison still. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, to respond to Ross's original point, you know, access discharging, is going to be critical. Um, and, you know, if you go back to the, the full customer base that, you know, we have to think about all the time, um, you know, overseas there is a strong preference for charging at home. To your point, Paul, people aren't going to, you know, wake up in the middle of the night, go out and find a, you know, a charge where there's, you know, cheap well, energy. I'm not. <laughs> no, well, neither am I. I'll give you a tip. But, um, but who's to say in the future they won't, you know, they won't on the radio publish, you know, here's really cheap charging destination in the same way they publish cheap petrol prices t today. So, you know, convenience is going to be a large part of, um, you know, how customers ultimately will use their own equipment. Um, so you could expect to see, you know, different types of charging solutions in the home, in places like City Power, you know, we're starting to think about, or sorry, we're in our networks, we're starting to think about, you know, chargers mounted on poles, which is something that's happening in Sydney. We're looking at that with United Energy. Um, you know, you're going to probably see in larger networks a lot more destination charging and, you know, your example in Lawn, you know, that is going to be a destination, you know, so there's probably going to be a need to have charges between there and Melbourne um, and in between. So all of that comes into it, but um, it's really quite exciting, actually. Absolutely. I mean, interestingly, while we're just talking about the whole nature of changing from petrol to electric and that kind of paradigm that we've had for a number of years where you go to a station, we're seeing a lot of petroleum players like BP and Ampol starting to enter the retail market essentially via EV charging, which obviously creates more competition. It's a fairly obvious pivot, if you if you ask me. Um, do you think we're going to see more of this, Ross? And, and what, what impact do you think it has on the traditional energy retailers? So I think if we look at the business model of a party that sells petrol and diesel today, what they are selling is transport fuel. Uh, these are large organisations, typically multi-billion dollar organisations. They can read the tea leaves just as well as anybody else. They know that the future is electrified road transport. They wish to continue selling transport fuel, which means they're going to be selling electrons. They can be doing this at their established retail premises where they're currently selling petrol and diesel today. So we're seeing rollouts in Australia at petrol stations of high power public charges by some of the organisations you mentioned. They can also do this by becoming energy retailers or acquiring energy retailers. So Shell, for example, bought Power Shop some years ago. They also bought ERM Power. Shell have not yet started rolling out in big numbers high power public charging in Australia, but they've certainly done it overseas. Uh, it would be sensible to assume that the people retailing petrol and diesel today will be retailing electricity in future.
I think it'd be interesting to see, um, this, I'm genuinely curious about this, is how does that petrol station experience change or does it change? Um, if you're on a road trip with your family, for example, and you need to stop at a public charger and you have a choice between stopping at a, a traditional t- truck stop with a fast food restaurant or two and, and some bathrooms, etc., um, or you can stop at a, a winery or a brewery or a golf course and charge um, or at some other type of cafe, what choice do you make? I think that it'll be really fascinating to see because it, you don't need a complex fuel bowser type setup that we have in order to refuel your vehicle. Uh, any organisation can potentially install an EV charger. So how does that change that um, dynamic? And also we've had this uh, long history now of highways that have been bypassing smaller towns. Does it make it more appealing to do that little uh, diversion into that smaller town in order to to charge up your car while you're having a nice glass of wine, responsibly, of course? You're talking about a big cultural shift? Absolutely. And it's all really a big cultural shift, isn't it? I mean, you know, we've gone from steam to petroleum to EV now, and it's it's um, there's lots of implications right across. I, I think that the, the overarching thing, though, I think for all of us to think about is, is this issue of fairness and equity for consumers, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah, I'll, I'll respond to that, Paul, first, if that's okay. But, um, you know, to kind of bring it up a level, it's really part of a theme of greater electrification, right? So not here to dismiss any other fuel, fuel sources, but, you know, in Victoria there's some, been some policy sh- shifts around, um, you know, residential gas uh, connections, um, you know, obviously shifting mobility to greater levels of electrification, more electrification in the home, greater levels of, you know, bring people bringing their own generation to their own load. So I think I think that's that's a large part of it. And so then when you look at EVs in isolation, they're one part of the story. And so as networks, we've got to factor in the cumulative impact of greater electrification of homes and businesses, EVs. How do we make that all work? How do we make it affordable for everyone um, and deliver safe, affordable, reliable energy like we always have done, the sort of, you know, traditional, really boring role that customers expect, but that's, you know, fundamental. And then um, you know, how do we get the mix right? And, you know, one of the other things we haven't touched on yet is that, you know, the, the battery, I mean, sorry, EVs are a battery on wheels. So that, that's playing a role to mm-hmm. soak up energy, um, potentially support more local distributed energy as well in the future. So, it's, um, yeah, that comprehensive view is what we're thinking about as a network. Well, that's a great segue that you've given me, Greg, because um, we've we've um, we've talked, we know, we, can, we, know, we know quite a bit about vehicle to load, V2L, we know about, the, the, the car battery being potentially a battery for your home. So I wanted to talk a little bit about vehicle to grid. Um, and there's been a few V to G trials over the last 18 months. We've had Gemini and Oznet, United, TAS Networks, Evo Energy, all participating in the 12-month EV grid trial co-funded by Arena. Ross, who's doing it best? What have we learned from these trials? So I think there's a couple of different things going on at once. We've got trials around can we arrange for the charging of vehicles to happen at the right time, whether that's controlled and orchestrated or whether it's done by incentivisation. And that's a really important piece to get right. What we don't want is a future where lots and lots of consumers are charging their cars at peak time. There's many ways to peel that vegetable, but that's a really important one to get right right now because we're closing in on 200,000 EV drivers in the country and we want them charging their cars middle of the day if possible, middle of the night if they can't charge in the middle of the day, and please, for the love of God, not at 6 o'clock in the afternoon on a hot day. The question around vehicle to grid, though, is how do we get to a future where after we have solved for the charging of the vehicles is happening at the right time, can we get them discharging into the grid to clip off some of those peak demand times 
avoid some potentially unnecessary network augmentation if we can, and lean on wholesale pricing to bring pricing of electricity for all the consumers, not just the EV drivers, down. Vehicle to grid is something where we have had many international trials. The count's somewhere north of 90 trials of vehicle to grid internationally. In Australia, if you own a Nissan or a Mitsubishi and you're in South Australia, you can do vehicle to grid today. What we're working on as an industry is adjusting the standards and the regulations so that you're going to be able to do vehicle to grid anywhere in the country. That's what our work on Australian Standard 4777's about. Public comment on that one incidentally comes out very soon. Industry players who are listening to this podcast should probably be across that one. The car manufacturers are increasingly planning to bring out vehicles that can support vehicle to grid. So once we've got our standards and regs environment right, and we've got cars that can do it, we can start doing vehicle to grid at more significant scale in Australia. There's, it's fair to say there's a lot more of that going on overseas than there is right here due to legislation largely, isn't it? Uh, I would say it's new everywhere. So we've seen far more trials of vehicle to grid overseas, but we do not yet really have a good example of a jurisdiction doing mm. vehicle to grid at a really, really significant scale. Uh, the Japanese have done more work on that, I think, than anyone else. Uh, Chartermo is the connection standard that supports vehicle to grid today. But there is room for whichever jurisdiction wants to pick it up and run with it to take the lead on this. Greg, yeah, you've got some gonna, insights. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, yeah no, that's, um, I was just going to um, just add to what Ross said because, you know, it's, un, it's unusual in the energy sector or even just in global affairs for Australia to be leading the world. But on integrating rooftop solar, you know, South Australia's been at the forefront of that and you know, the Australian market has been. And what, what, what that has um, brought to life is the concept of the two-sided energy system, right? Everyone knows it's a two-way grid now. But networks used to manage for import, peak demand. Now we're going to manage for export. So in South Australia, you know, the, the whole state has at times been a generator, right? The whole distribution grid has been a generator. In Victoria, we've had some minimum demand records just in the last four weeks. So the whole concept of export management is becoming more fundamental. How do you do it to maintain system security? How do you do it to provide... Um, you know, fair export um, capacity for all customers. Um, and the benefit of that work is going to flow through to how do we, how do we get it, how do, how do we actually enable vehicle to grid? Because we're having to solve those problems today for rooftop solar um, and very, very similar issues will emerge, um, you know, when, when EVs are kind of at that point as well. Um, and, you know, Ross, you and I were on a, on a panel recently and, you know, I, I always kind of make the point that there's going to be some load in between the vehicle and the grid. And just the economics of um, self-consumption mean that, you know, you're better off to kind of try and match that production side to your consumption side wherever you can and whatever's left to go onto the grid if there's any left. Rob, what, what are your sort of takeaways from these trials? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. What, what I think um, from my history of working for networks and now working for ChargeFox, the area that I think we we sometimes think of last is that that consumer equity, because all of these things are fantastic. I drive an EV. I'm probably a, a self-confessed energy nerd. I've electrified my home. I've done all that type of stuff. Um, but there are so much more optionality coming into the, the energy network at the moment from a consumer's perspective. You've got solar. You've potentially got vehicle to grid. You've got EVs. You've got do you charge at home? Do you charge in public? What type of retail tariff structure do you go on? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's all well and good for boffins such as us who are switched on and, and probably spend too much time reading about this online. But what do we do for those people that perhaps aren't as engaged or aren't, don't have the ability or the accessibility to be as engaged and as knowledgeable about um, what their options are? I do expect you, that's the majority of people, though, really. Yes, it is very much the majority of people. And I think historically the energy game has been, um, if we go back 
before privatisation, for example, it has been you paid your energy bill. That was about that was all, all yeah. your involvement in your in your consumer um, in your consuming of energy, and and you probably consumed less if you wanted to save money, and more if you had a little bit more scratch. But now there are literally dozens, if not hundreds, of decisions you can make every day, and that's only going to increase by orders of magnitude as more kind of intelligence and optionality comes into the system. So, I'm really curious to understand kind of. Who, who is going to take up the mantle for making this palatable, not only palatable, I should say comprehensible for um, average families out there to ensure that we don't have, uh, I guess, a, a growing gap between the haves and the have-nots in terms of knowledge around energy? It's a big challenge, you know, because I think that as a, as a person that's not in the energy industry myself, my perception is that we're asking regular, everyday Australians to do a lot of heavy lifting, aren't we? And we're asking them to do it without a whole lot of education behind it. Yes, we can incentivize, but 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 a lot of people don't necessarily understand why electricity is more at six o'clock at night than it is at two in the afternoon. Um, so we're, we've got a lot of expectations on consumers and it's often the the sort of middle class or working class Australians that, you know, are working hard every day to, to pay the rent or the mortgage, to feed their kids. Um, they're the ones that don't have time to think about this, don't necessarily know about it, but we're asking them to act. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's a really important point. And I think Rob touched on it earlier. The key here is simplicity. If the thing that you are asking the average punter to do is complicated, then they're going to ignore the complicated ask and do the simple thing. So the education piece is absolutely critical. Designing the ask so it's very, very easy to comply with, right? If the ask is your electric car has the ability in it to set the time to avoid charging from 3 in the afternoon till 9 p.m., please use that and it'll save you money and it'll be better for the environment, right? If you reduce the ask to that, you're more likely to get compliance. On vehicle to grid, the ideal future state there is the person who owns an electric car, gets home from work or gets home from doing the run to pick up the kids from school, plugs their car in, the vehicle starts discharging to feed their home first and then to Greg's point with the leftover into the grid at peak time. It stops discharging when peak time is ended because its support is no longer required and then it recharges either overnight in the small hours from wind power or the next day from solar. Making that stack up commercially for the consumer is critical because if it doesn't stack up commercially, they won't do it at all. Making it simple is really, really critical. So it's got to be commercially sensible and simple. And it's our job as the energy industry, the EV industry, to make sure that we satisfy those two bits. And I've got extreme confidence in the networks to solve all the engineering, the ones and zeros, the technical problems. Very, very clever people work at all the DNSPs and, and transmission organisations and all the other organisations involved. Um, they will solve these problems. They, they, if my experience is anything, it's they relish solving these problems. They love this. Um, it's the, it's the behavioural, the psychosocial side of things that for me personally is, is the real kind of unknown or the real um, opportunity, I should say. Uh, how do we make sure that this is this is a democratic, equal um, kind of evolution that lifts up everyone? I think that you got the nail right on the head with the word democratic. It, it does need to be that. Greg, yeah. you're looking like oh, no. I, to just, add. I think um, you know Ross's vision. Yeah, you know that's kind of that's what you know we're all sort of aiming towards. But you know we've got to be very anchored today around you know making it fair for everyone. Um, you know Ross mentioned. Um, earlier about the great increase in throughput. 
So that's going to have a role to um, cushion prices. But, you know, the, the time of charging, the impact of charging is going to drive a need for more network um, investment. Um, and I think it would be naive to think that that's not going to be the case. But it's about getting the balance right, making sure that it's fair for everyone. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, you know, networks do more and more these days, which is really good, is, you know, having to kind of stress test our proposals with customer groups. So, you know, I've spent a lot of time with Gavin Dufty, so shout out to Gavin. But, you know, he's, he's um, you know, ferocious in standing up for the people who are, you know, on maybe the underside of advantage and can't afford some of these options, right? So yeah. that's always got to be front of mind. And, um, yeah, so that's why I'll keep saying it, but the 99% of EV customers are really prominent in our thinking today as well into the future. I think there's a really interesting equation that needs to be balanced between what level of control DNSPs feel that they have to have or that they require and what consumers are aware of or willing to give. Mm. Mm. Isn't there? And uh, I think, sorry, can I just add one, one, one last thing? You know, if we look okay. ahead to when this is all solved and, you know, we've electrified and, you know, got hundreds of thousands of EVs, you know, I want us to look back as an industry and say, hey, we planned that right, you know, we did it well, it was orderly, it was transition, it was, you know, whereas the worst thing that could happen is that there's a, there's a rush to kind of react to an uptake and there is a lack of funding to make it work and it's all a bit chaotic. That, that's not what we want. And, you know, if you look back the last 10 years, I think, a lot of good lessons about how to integrate new technology over time and solve the issues um, up front as much as you can so that you don't sort of, they don't whack you in the face down the track. So bare bones, boots on the ground question. We've got AS4777 now. Um, that allows V2X to happen in the network. But what's the next job for DNSPs? Well, the, the next job is to, to make sure that we can forecast correctly how many EVs we're going to have that we can uh, secure the revenue to integrate them efficiently and affordably for all customers. And on a really practical level, it needs to be easy for people to connect their EVs. We need to have, you know, ideally better visibility so we can actually improve our, our planning. Um, and as, as, um, as we work through a lot of the actual practical issues, it's gonna be things around how we connect them, the safety standards, the protocols, the technical standards that are going to be front of mind. And, and the other one I'd put on the table, which is probably not so much EVs, but building regulations, planning, land planning, access to charging, that's a big part of the story in enabling a greater yeah. level of um, EV uptake in the future. So that's a pretty comprehensive answer, but there's a lot there. And it's, you know, it's kind of the way I describe it is it's the boring things that probably no one focuses on other than the industry practitioners, getting those right so it's safe, it's affordable, it's all those things that are the focus for DNSPs at the moment. So I think you're right. I might just pick up on that, that piece around boring things being important. My kids love Bluey. Anyone who's watched the pool episode of Bluey knows what I'm talking about here. Boring <laughs> things are important. I haven't seen that one, but I'll look it up. <laughs> so I think that question around uh, control, how much control is desired, how much is going to be given up, there should be an assumption there that there's a large number of people who are going to buy an EV and who are going to charge it by plugging into the 10-amp PowerPoint in the garage or in the driveway. Right? There's going to be a large number of consumers who will do that. And they'll do it because that is the $0 investment option. That's the means by which they can buy an EV and charge it without having to do anything. We were talking about social equity before. If the person is renting that house, right, like 35-odd percent of Australians, the conversation between the tenant and the landlord around can I install an EV charger and who's going to pay for it is going to end fairly predictably. Right? The likelihood is we're going to see a lot of these assets that aren't orchestrated. The question is not 
can they all be orchestrated? It's can we achieve the behaviour we want? So there'll be a mix there of some people doing orchestration and some people being incentivised by tariffs and reasonable to expect some people doing the wrong thing. And it's the people who are charging at peak time that will drive need for network augmentation. Around that question of equity and fairness, we already have a circumstance where solar on rooftops is predominantly in owner-occupied dwellings. If you look at the split between solar on owner-occupied versus solar on rented, the renters absolutely lose out in that equation. When we transition to EVs, we need to be cognizant of that and we need to make sure that the things we're doing don't discourage people who rent their homes from buying EVs. The person who's in rental accommodation, the person who's potentially not on the kind of income that the folks in this room and the folks in this audience enjoy, when they first buy an EV, it's probably going to be a second-hand EV. It'll be an ex-fleet vehicle because three-quarters of the vehicles sold in this country are traded second-hand, not you. Those vehicles, those buyers are going to be looking for what is the lowest cost way for me to fuel that vehicle that is consistent and convenient with my lifestyle. Mm. I think it's our job to make sure that that stacks up with good energy system outcomes. I think it goes even beyond renters, uh, even high density homeowners. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was an apartment owner um, a number of years ago and I tried to get solar installed on the apartment block that I owned um, and it was was near impossible. I just gave up because of the, the bureaucratic systems that go in place with the strata type complex. So how how do we ensure that that is a, a situation that we are planning for and we're enabling people to to charge because we know they're going to. And like you said, they're either going to charge their car the right way or they're going to do it, quote unquote, the wrong way. Either way, they're going to charge their car. So we have to make it as simple as possible for them to be able to do that the right way. And one of the other obvious things that um, EVs are different to say solar is um to my knowledge, not many people have taken their solar panels between states, but obviously a car is inherently mobile and it's going to commute, you know, in Australia in particular, long distances between states, you know, maybe three states you know, or more um, in a one trip. And, you know, getting the settings right across the jurisdictions is, is critical. So the networks are really starting to collaborate and, you know, Ross has been, you know, engaging with them as well on, you know, the connection processes and standards around, you know, what does that look like? Because, you know, they're... they're similar but then there's always subtleties so you know getting the kind of harmonized view as best we can across the country i think is something that you know we're all looking at um whereas for you know solar it's been pretty much jurisdictionally you know driven um and not portable whereas evs are not that (laughs) no absolutely look i I think in our half hour we've managed to cover a fair bit of ground there and there's been some really uh some really good points made did anyone have any final thoughts rob I think for for me, there's uh, it's important to keep in mind there's there's three places that people can charge their EV. They can charge it uh, in the public network, they can charge it at home, and they can charge it at their workplace. Once we evolve to this V two X or V two grid um, type environment, that's going to become a really dynamic situation. Um, and I think that it's important that we're keeping all of those things in mind once we're building as we're building this the new EV ecosystem. Great. I'd say to um, you know your audience, but you know to customers in general, if you're at solar, EV, battery, non-EV, just traditional customer, DNSPs have got your back. We're, we're catering for your needs. We're thinking about the things that you know you're gonna um, they're gonna make your life easier if you get an EV. But you know across the board, you know you should continue to have a really um, convenient and affordable and safe access for all your energy needs. So we've got your back. As a consumer, I feel warm and safe. Oh, yeah, that's the, that was the intent. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Ross? 
I'd like to thank you for hosting this, Paul. Much appreciated. And close with, uh, I guess, a message of hope, a message of the scale of what Vehicle to Grid's going to bring us. We've got about 15 million cars in this country. If you assume that each of those cars is exporting via the same kind of inverter that we use for our solar panels today at about five kilowatts, that scale, that quantum, is more than double the peak demand across the entire national energy market. It is huge. We're not going to have a future where every car is exporting at the same time because we can't. There just isn't that much demand. A future where one car out of five is able to export at one time when we transition all the cars in 2030X or 2040X, right? It'll take us time to get there. But when we get there, the scale of potential export is one of the key things we can do to clean up our energy sector from the point of view of emissions, which is really the name of the game. Well, the math certainly adds up. Greg Hannon, Rob Asselman, thanks for joining us today. And Ross, it's been a pleasure as always. Uh, And finally, to our listeners, thank you for joining us. For more engaging content, don't forget you can register online for the Power and Utilities Australia Leadership Summit at powerutilitiesaustralia.com. That's all for now. I hope you can tune in again next month when we talk all things hydrogen. You've been listening to Focus on Utilities, brought to you by Power and Utilities Australia, the disruptor platform for Australia's utilities undergoing transition. Join us in person at the Power and Utilities Australia Leadership Summit and Expo in Melbourne, 7th to 8th of May 2024.